Welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Pete and Jason from Squeaky Pedal. So this episode, we're kind of looking, going right back to the start of the Unknown Warrior, looking at kind of the origins of it and kind of where the idea came from. Yeah, so we're very fortunate to be joined by the author and historian Andrew Richards. His book, The Flag, the story of the Reverend David Railton MC and the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior, was a key text when we were researching the story uh, and we were lucky enough to hear him speak at the National Army Museum. Uh, last year as well and so because he's an expert on the Reverend David Railton who came up with the idea of the Unknown Warrior we wanted to bring him on the podcast so big thank you to you Andrew for agreeing to do this. Oh you're welcome nice to be here thanks for uh, asking me to come on. I think the, the Reverend David Railton somebody who people will have heard of in relation to the Unknown Warrior but there's a lot of sort of mixed information as to where it was that he came up with the idea but if we start right back from the beginning so who was the reverend railton and what was his role as a padre during the first world war well um david railton was a uh, church of england chaplain who actually joined up in 1916 he is the son of george scott railton who was the first commissioner of the salvation army he became a a curate at the um he studied at the Bishop's Hostel in Liverpool after leaving Keble College, Oxford. At Oxford, he was part of the Oxford Volunteers um, when he studied at Keble College, which is the, were the pre-runner to the Oxford uh, University Officer Training Corps, which exists today. And um, he was in Folkestone when he joined up in, in January 1916. He was a uh, private soldier whilst he was a curate in Liverpool with the Liverpool Scottish. And he actually became very good friends with the son of his bishop, Bishop Chavez, of course. Um, Noel Chavez, as we all know, is a double uh, Victoria Cross winner, um, one of only two, I believe. And he, uh, well, after he joined up in 1916 in Folkestone, he served with the 18th Northumberland Fusiliers at uh, Armentiers and Vimy Ridge before being transferred in May 1916 to the 19th Battalion London Regiment and served at High Wood where he won Military Cross for saving an officer and two private soldiers whilst being under sniper fire. Uh, he was then with the 19th London Battalion during the winter of 1916-1917 along the Ypres Salient. He saw some terrible times there and he was promoted for his work to the battalion and he went to the 19th Division and served with them all the way through to the end of the war. I think it's important to to note down that you've said that he won the military cross for bravery. He was very much on the front line, wasn't he? And and was exposed to the fighting and what was going on. So he would have seen firsthand the the losses that were being experienced on the Western Front. Oh, absolutely. He um he was an extremely brave man, but he wasn't reckless with his life. And I say that with you know, I'm not trying to belittle um soldiers who he was brave, you know, who died under fire, but he knew that he could do no good being dead. He openly admitted that, you know, Padre should be up the front, but, you know, why throw your way or your life needlessly? He was a brave, a brave man, but he, he wasn't going to try to win a medal or anything. And, and there's hardly any record of what he actually did. I've had to actually piece together um, from lots of different um, texts and in letters about actually what he did. And he's such a humble man that he, he didn't want to take credit for it. It states in your book the fact that he never mentioned winning the military medal to any of his friends. He just kept it completely quiet, which I think gives you a gauge of the type of man he was. Well, that's right. I mean, talking to the Relton family too, there was never a record. David Relton QC, who is the grandson of David Relton, said that his father never spoke about the war and his father, David Relton, never spoke about the war. And they were both in, and it's funny that Andrew Scott Relton, 
David Relton's son actually won the military cross in the Second World War. So, uh, <laughs> you know, brave, brave stock. Let's put it that way. Your, your book is called The Flag, and obviously it talks about the flag that the Reverend Railton took with him to the front. And that flag, one of the two flags that ended up being with him whilst he was at the front, now hangs in Westminster Abbey. It's, it's really interesting what you say in the book about the fact that he one of the reasons he, he had it with him was that it added colour to what was quite a, a sort of a dar and drab front line where a lot of these servicemen were for church services but obviously that flag played an awfully important role in in burials as well didn't it yeah absolutely i think the decision was made before the first world war um well actually at the start of the first world war uh, not to take regimental colors uh into into battle as they had done in the past the thought of them being paraded down um the Kofirsten Dam in uh, in Berlin was horrific. So they didn't take them over there. David actually thought that was a mistake because they could have been kept in the rear and they could have been brought up for church services. So that's one of the reasons he wanted the flag to be there. He would lay the flag out in trenches when he was giving communion to soldiers, if he was conducting burial services or, or regimental church services, running up a, a makeshift flagpole. And he thought it was a, a really, really important symbol. And of course, he used it on all sorts of and several tragic occasions, too. He used it at boxing tournaments and he also used it to give communion to a condemned soldier before he was about to be executed. And so to say that the flag is tinged with the blood of British soldiers is, is quite accurate. And I think that, you know, it's, it's important to note that the Reverend Railton would have had, you know, that first hand experience of the burial of large numbers of soldiers and seen a large number of soldiers killed in the front line which would then obviously go a long way to forming his views about kind of remembrance and how these soldiers would be commemorated once the war ended which led into his ideas on the unknown warrior absolutely particularly at high wood the battalion was one of the least affected when i say least affected i think it was about 40 percent losses of the 47th division at high wood so they got spammed for you know for one of a better word the terrible task of battlefield clearance of once high wood had been cleared of Germans, they actually had to clear the wood, or what was left of it, of the bodies. And I think reading his letters and reading everything that I've come across, it's just one of the worst experiences you could possibly imagine. I just, you know, sat writing about it. I couldn't imagine just what it was like to stumble upon bodies, mutilated bodies of friends, of officers and uh, in his uh, letters that are at the Imperial War Museum, it's um, they were donated by the family. It's striking. I think that of all the things he went through, and uh, I think Highwood was one of the most forming experiences that he had. And how did all those kind of experiences then lead him to, you know, kind of as Jace mentioned, it, obviously his ideas on kind of remembrance and the just the, you know, the bloodshed that he'd seen. And that, so how, how does that lead him to kind of conceive the idea for then they were? And how do we end up at that? Because obviously there's a little bit of conjecture about kind of the story of that as well, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Um, in your first episode, you mentioned that the story he told in the article in 1931 article uh, in Our Empire. I mean, you know, you, that that is the story that's given out there and everybody. But I came across a typed up story from the family have still kept and it's never been published and I put it in the book and as he was going to London to hand the flag in 
for the Unknown Warrior to uh, Dean Royal at Westminster Abbey. He wanted to give to the press the idea, uh, the, how the flag came about. And he wrote it in the voice of the flag, which is very unusual. And it, the, this, this unpublished manuscript um, belongs to the family, but I was allowed to use you know, parts of it. And it, it really is very enlightening. And actually, in, in part of it, he said that, and he wrote, bear in mind, he wrote this in 1920, that he didn't actually realize when he came up with the idea. So, you know, I'm not saying that he didn't have this idea in Armentier. I think it's, you know, you have to think that it's, it's uh, 11 years after the event. You know, it's, uh, it's like, I know you guys have been talking about, um, you know, uh, people getting things wrong, you know, 20 years after the event. I think this all kind of ties up. But it's a, it's a great story, and I'm, I have no doubt that he he came across the simple white wooden cross in the garden of the house he was staying in, in Erkingham, near Armentier. And, uh, you know, I, that, that's the story he used in 1931, and I'm not saying that's not right, but in 1920 he wrote a different story about he was on a horse coming from a, a, a church service and he doesn't quite remember how it, how it happened, but it's, 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 all, it's all very interesting. I think that's conceivable though, isn't it? Because, you know, there's any creative idea or whatever, there's not a, necessarily a one eureka moment. It kind of happens over time. And, you know, as you, as you say, the mind is a, is a wonderful thing that kind of fills in the gaps of, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> and you have to remember his mind was in turmoil. He, he clearly suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. I think one of his, um, you asked the question about, you know, what his uh, motivation was, I think his letters to family members and he's, his family still have some of those in the archives. They were a great source of comfort. He wrote to every soldier that he buried to the families. And um, it, it was a great source of comfort to receive letters back and, and, and know that they had been buried and he was with them in many cases as they died in casualty clearing stations and aid posts. And I think the letters, more than anything else, were one of his uh, motivating factors for this idea. I really do. I think if he could give an idea, if he could bring forward something that would help these families in the suffering after the war, that gave him great, great comfort himself for a man who was as traumatised as he was. So he's, he's conceived of this idea. What does he then decide to do? He sits on it, doesn't he, for quite a while, really, before he sort of puts it out there. Yeah, I think the, the genius of this is, is the patience he showed when he got back. I mean, you have to remember the time that he was going through. It was 1919. The world was in absolute turmoil. There was revolution everywhere. And the fact that he didn't write this letter straight away and sat on it and thought, I can't do this, I can't do this, um, and he... I think is 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 the absolute genius, and he hit the nail on the head exactly at the right time when he wrote that letter in August of 1920, and he wrote it to the right person too, into Dean Herbert Ryle, the, the dean of Westminster, and he also he he there there are stories out that he wrote to Lord Hague during the war. I I've never found that evidence. He actually said he thought about writing to Lord Hague. But he, I've never found anything to say that he actually did. And I think writing to Lord Hague would have been a mistake because I think it would have been dismissed. Because I don't think, I think Lord Hague was focused on other things and he might have been very dismissive about it. But, um, you know, I, I, th I think it hit it perfectly on the head. And I think you have, to, you have to bring in the state of the Church of England at the time, the Anglican Church. They had basically had the national symbol of commemoration taken away from them. As such, if the Church of England had their way, where the cenotaph is now, there would be a huge white stone cross 
I have no doubt about that. That's what they wanted, as you see in villages up and down the countryside. But when Lutyens was uh, given the task of building a monument, it was basically a secular monument. They hated this. They really did. And so when the opportunity came and the idea came into the lap of Dean Herbert Royal, the, the church grasped it. And you, you can't blame them. They took this idea and to bring it into the center. And Westminster Abbey is literally the center of the Anglican church. And, um, you know, so I, I think the genius behind the idea is, is, is not only the person they wrote to, but also the timing when it happened. A lot of life is about timing, the way that we do things, just forward at the right time. And, and then, you know, that sort of gains the traction that we need to get to get things done. There's obviously stories about the fact that the prime minister was interested, but the king wasn't. And then he had to be he had to be sort of brought round. But again, that might be sort of conjecture, really, from what from what's mentioned. Yeah, well, that's one of the things I've read early on when I was researching this book is the fact that, uh, you know, oh, the king said no, the king said no. The king didn't say no. He he had doubts about it. He thought that the country was healing um, and he thought that bringing it up would tear a rent through society. And he was clearly wrong. But he also said, however, and, you know, in the letter you have to read it, it says, however, comma. And you know, he go, then goes on to say, uh, well, I'll put your idea past X, Y and Z. So he never said no. You know, I think that's it's kind of blown out of proportion, really. He was doubtful that the idea would take on, but he was convinced by Lord George into doing it. And I think, as, as we all know, it was just it's, it's just an incredible thing to have done. And it's lasted 100 years. There's, there's an amazing bit in your book where you describe David going to the commemoration, the, the laying to rest of the Unknown Warrior in Westminster Abbey, how there was a chill in the air because obviously we, we're getting towards autumn and winter but the strength of feeling that was there seeing the, the amounts of people who'd come out to to witness this not only the laying to rest of the unknown warrior but the unveiling of the new cenotaph as well it creates a really powerful image what you know what do you think david would have felt at that moment when he saw this idea that he'd had on the western front come to life in such a in such a public way there's very little about what he felt. He never wrote about what he felt. You know, incorrectly, many people have written that he was at the cenotaph and would have seen all this, but he clearly wasn't. He, his photographs that were in the family archive of him, his wife and his mother in front of Buckingham Palace. So they'd arrived at Victoria Station. They walked to Buckingham Palace in the mist. They wouldn't have seen anything because of the smog at the time that was around that morning. And then they walked to Westminster Abbey and were in Westminster Abbey just a few feet away from the royal family. They had tickets to, to go in there. So I don't actually think he would have understood, you know, he would have gone into the Abbey and that was it. He wouldn't have seen anything until afterwards. And I think it's afterwards when going back to Victoria Station again, he would have seen the, the, the queues, the lines of people waiting to file past the cenotaph to go in to pay tribute to the Unknown Warrior. I don't think it's much later until he would have, and I think he would have read the newspapers and, and seen, you know, some of the descriptions by him, particularly in the Times, some of the writers of the time were, you know, the very flowery prose, you know, that people just don't like right in the newspapers as they used to. It, it's very, very moving. They had stories of, uh, you could hear nothing, but the, some of the metal on the gun carriage and uh, the horses, hooves, and the soldiers marching. I don't think we've had a ceremonial procession like this. I don't even think the funeral service of Diana, Princess of Wales. It's certainly up there, and it's very, very, it was, it was an incredible occasion. But I don't think we've ever had anything like 
the burial of the unknown warrior. And the, the, the thing is, we, we really haven't got much record. We've, we have the descriptions of the times. And then we have the, the Pathé newsreel that um, in black and white. That, and you just have to look at that and study that and see the crowds and how deep they were. They were 20 deep all the way along the mall and around Hyde Park Corner. It's just, it's just incredible, the amount of people that came out. And he continued his remarkable work after the war, didn't he? As a reverend, but also as a, as a pillar for the community, looking after the, the poor within his own parish and, and also trying to explore. Uh, there was a famous episode of him sort of pretending to be a tramp and going round and, and finding, experiencing that for himself and, and being able to relate to some of the, the poor in, in society who needed his help after the war. Absolutely. He was driven by looking after those who were less fortunate than most of us. And, you know, he, he dedicated himself to soldiers in, I think, in 1916. He early on in his service, in one of his letters, he wrote to his wife, if, uh, if God spares me from this war, I will spend my rest of my life in service to the men who fought here. Or, well, you know, I paraphrase, I haven't got it in front of me, but, um, it, you know, he was going to dedicate his life to the soldiers. And he didn't just do that, he did that for the poor too, you know. The whole episode of him going on several tramps. Uh, I know for a fact he, he rent, went on worn around the Carlisle area because the family had a house there. The family also, uh, his, on his uh, wife's side, his mother-in-law, they had a house up near um, uh, Windy Newark, south of Newcastle. And uh, I know for a fact that he actually went on a tramp around the mines there but I, you know, I, I couldn't put that in the books. I couldn't, I could, couldn't actually um, say for fact that that happened, and I didn't have any. Uh, but you know, from all the descriptions, that, that's what he did. He he wanted to see how it was, and when he came back, he wrote about it and and said, "Look, our serving soldiers are in a terrible state, and this is what's happening." I think that's important to remember: is that the fact that, that obviously those soldiers suffered, you know, in the depressions and the the tough economic times that happened in the twenties and thirties. They may have served their country, and there may be monuments to what. They, they did during the First World War, but then the interwar period, they were struggling. And so it's really important to say that he didn't forget about them. He kept trying to help them in any way that he could. Absolutely. I mean, he loved private soldiers. He also loved the senior, senior officers. He thought the senior officers, people like Haig, had a terrible job. You know, and with all the criticism of it, he was never critical of Haig. He was critical of, of other officers who threw away lives need, needlessly, but... He was never critical of Haig, and certainly after the war, when Haig, um, you know, started the Haig Foundation, and um, he dedicated his life as much as David Relton, the both of them basically went, it paralleled towards helping serving soldiers, and um, you know, he mentioned that Lord Haig is dedicating the rest of his life, and I, I think he did that. There's, a, I don't want to get into being critical of his war tactics, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but there's no doubt that Haig worked extremely hard after the war as David Relton did for ex-soldiers. I think it makes it kind of all the more pertinent when you know about the man behind it that he was so kind of selfless wasn't he? He was so selfless and wasn't after the glory of you know I'm the, I'm the man that came up with this idea it was just that he sort of did it and then it was like it's now it's the nation's everyone's to to kind of do and go to as, as you wish. It kind of just makes it all the more powerful really. Absolutely, he was completely selfless. I mean, he, the, one, of the, one of the issues I had was finding information about him because he never wrote about himself. There was a little bit of those days of, oh, a gentleman never talks about what one did in the war. Um, but, you know, he really was like that. And, um, and it was difficult, but he was a great note taker. He scribbled on everything, postcards. Uh, if somebody wrote to him, he'd write a little note 
like he was put, leaving it for posterity. It was it was really was like little breadcrumbs everywhere. When I was, um, you know, and I was so lucky, and I'm still very, very thankful to the Relton family for allowing me to get into their archives and letters. And it was, um, it was, it's incredible. He kept everything. I think that's the thing when you're exploring these things. You're reading about somebody in history, but then to have their personal correspondence, to have their letters, to have their writing, it just allows you to connect with those people on a different level. And I think that's something that we've discovered through looking at archival documents and, and ID cards and, and orders. It just sort of brings it home. It's not just something in a history book. It's real. And I think that it just adds a different perspective on it for yourself, you know what I mean, when you're going through these things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It always brings it into 3D, doesn't it, kind of when you go through that kind of stuff? Brings it off the page, as it were, yeah. It certainly does. Well, I think that's a superb exploration of David Railton's life and his idea for The Unknown Warrior. So we'd just like to say a big thank you for coming on the podcast and, and talking to us about David, Andy, and we will speak to you soon. All right, thanks very much. My, my, my pleasure.